There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, welcome to this Kermode on Film podcast. Coming up in this edition, we have an interview with Maggie Gyllenhaal in which she talks about her new film, The Kindergarten Teacher, and I get her to play the theremin. We have Lynn Ramsey and Samantha Morton together, recorded live at one of the MK3D shows I do at the BFI South Bank. But I start off with a head-to-head with regular guest Jack Howard. So we're delighted to welcome back to Kermit on Film, uh, Jack Howard. Hello there. Hello. Uh, The last time you were on, we talked about two sort of fairly recent releases, which is Venom and First Man. And we said what we're going to do is we're going to alternate, you know, more contemporary films with some old classics. And when you and I first started talking about this, one of the first things you said that we should do is we should do the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah. Because you and I, we're both very attached to the Dark Knight trilogy, but we feel slightly different about it. And this came about because I said, yeah, we'll talk about the Dark Knight trilogy and we'll talk about the fact that the one that you think is the best is the one that I think I is, can't, is I the I can't. I genuinely weakest. couldn't believe it. I know. Like, when, when, you, when you said I know. Batman Begins is better, I was like, sorry. Yeah. S- one more time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So my theory is that Batman Begins and Dark Knight Rises are both... <gasps> I'm sorry. Oh, are it gets both, worse. Are both better than The Dark Knight. Okay? Oh, my. And, and yours is, which I have to say is a, a, a much more widely held opinion, that The Dark Knight is the... Is the but, top dog. Yeah, so I'm going to start by saying, Jack, give it, <laughs> give it your best shot. Okay, uh, so before we go any further, just know that this is an entirely spoiler-filled discussion. Oh, yeah. yeah. Obviously, like, whenever we do this, it's going to be a massive in-depth discussion yeah. about all we'll the We'll talk about everything, points. you know, everything that happens, all the key things. So if co- somehow you haven't seen Nolan's Batman trilogy, yeah. then go and do that off. now. There are other podcasts available. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be great fun. <laughs> um, okay, so... I rewatched Batman Begins in preparation for this. Okay, great. Because I was like, I've seen The Dark Knight more times than I can count. And it's going to be difficult for me to come at this objectively and without using any of my real personal attachment to it. Yeah. Because The Dark Knight might be one of the most formative films of my life. Because yeah. I saw it at the age of like 16. I was, I was like proper ripe for taking in its sort of language and the way that it like redefined cinema in general but also it completely defined what cinema meant to me okay not a rude question how old are you actually i'm 26 okay i joke about you being a child but you are actually a child i am in many ways Uh, (laughs) uh, so so yeah and and like a couple of months ago it was re-released for a 10-year anniversary and i couldn't wait to go and see that and imax it was like christmas for me it was like being a kid i was like 
this is what the cinema is for. Okay. Like, it's for stuff like this. So that's how I feel about The Dark Knight, just okay. before we go forward and talk about all okay. the specifics and differences. Right. I think Batman Begins is a really good film, and I don't think that we are disputing whether or not it's a good film or not. No. I mean, um, in fact, you tell me what you think about it, and I'll tell you what I think about it. So Batman Begins, because okay. that's a good way of doing it. Okay, so I think Batman Begins starts out in its sort of first act as a really interesting... Uh, way of telling the Batman story like it flows so naturally between flashback and present day with very obvious and blunt statements like tell us Bruce why didn't you avenge your parents death flashback and and like that's fine and that, that flows really really well but then during the second act it sort of abandons that and that's okay but it just feels like we're going through so many different ways of storytelling. It's a very um, subjective film for a long time. And you mean you see it from his point of view? Completely Bruce Wayne's point of view. Like, I don't think there's really a scene that he's not in for a long time. Yeah. And then, all of a sudden, this is where the film, for me, starts to really lose its originality and its excitement, actually, about, about being and feeling quite different. There's just this random scene where they set up the doomsday device and this one it's a water vapor that that you know does whatever it does and 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 (laughs) who cares um it's bad yeah (laughs) and batman has to stop it but it's like part of wayne enterprises and there's a scene in the boardroom where somebody comes in and goes sir the doomsday device is 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 it was on a ship and someone's turned it on and now it's missing and I was like, what the hell was that? Like, where did that scene come from? It was like Nolan was sat at the, at the, at the table being like, I don't know how to set up this doomsday device. Does anyone care? I'll just put this scene in, like, and it will be fine. Cause like, and that's what it sort of feels like, that there was no better way of setting up that stuff. It doesn't feel like it flows with the rest of the film. He's here. Who? The Batman. Gotham isn't beyond saving. Another thing as well is the amount of times that Nolan and David S. Goya, I don't know if there's a, there's a word or a phrase for this technique, where they say a line and then you repeat the line later in a different context. Okay. I don't know if there's a phrase if for that. If there is, I don't know what it is. Fine. That, you know, mise-en-scene, I only found out what that <laughs> meant like a couple of months ago, so, you know. But, like, that technique is used so much in this film and it's such a weird little nitpick that I have with it but like it really bothers me it almost feels like they're going we're clever like we're using all these different lines in different contexts finders keepers mind your surroundings Uh, it's not who I am underneath it's what I do that defines me that's just to name three I'm pretty sure there's like five or six that they just keep reusing I also think that it's got less of a focus on what it's about than The Dark Knight but ultimately it's still a really good fun time i just think that it feels separate to the dark knight because it feels like it's a studio movie and it feels like it's maybe the most i don't want to say generic because that's not what i mean but it's maybe the most normal of nolan's movies that he's made okay and that is those are my general thoughts (laughs) i went back and i i looked at the film again and then i you know, sometimes you don't think that you go back and you look at your review of something, you watch a film, and then you watch your review of it, and you wince because you think, oh, I got that wrong. And oh, I missed, I missed something. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I said this thing, and I forgot. I should never trust when you start those sort of sentences. <laughs> so what I said when I reviewed it when it first came out was, 
it's an art house movie that just happens to be trapped in the body of a hundred million dollar blockbuster. And I'd completely forgotten saying that. And when I went back to that review, I thought that is exactly what it is. I remember coming out of the screening and I'd gone to see it with Nigel Floyd. Mm-hmm. Nigel is not a, you know, a, a comic books fan. And I mean, I, I know bits and bobs, but very little. I'm nothing like as steeped in it as you are. I'm kind of, you know, I, I've, I've always been an outsider to it. And I came out of it and I said, I cannot believe how good that was. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe that somebody has actually managed to take the, the blockbuster form and make an art house movie out of it. And the way, that, the way that it worked for me was, firstly, I loved how subjective it was. I mean, you're absolutely right about that. It is. It's like a Nolan movie in exactly the same way that Memento is, mm. that you're seeing the things through the prism of, of, of one character. Second thing is, I remember thinking, I can't believe how much time he's not Batman. Yeah. I mean, a really, really substantial part of that movie, he's not Batman. And, okay, fine, if you go and see something called Batman Begins, obviously it's an origin story, you understand all that stuff, and it's a bit perverse. But it is about 50 minutes. It is about, yeah, it's the best part of the first hour before he's Batman. And I was a certain age when the Tim Burton Batman came out. Mm-hmm. And me and my friend Tim Polecat had had this thing, oh, he's going to make a dark Batman movie. It's going to be a dark Batman movie. You know, oh, it's going to be great. And it's going to be all, yeah, dark, dark. And then, of course, it came out and it wasn't. It was just a Tim Burton movie. And it, you know, and it was actually kind of weirdly anodyne. And then we went through, you know, all the other iterations and the, the Schumacher. And it, 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 Batman had really sort of been kicked around town as far as the cinematic universe was concerned. And then here comes this film that for the whole of the first section of it, it's not even a Batman film. It's a film about all this other stuff. How do you know my name? The world is too small for someone like Bruce Wayne to disappear. Your parents' death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Which is a legend, Mr. Wayne. I remember being absolutely knocked out by it. I remember just thinking, I can't believe you've actually managed to get this level of ideas-based stuff into such a big movie. Now, I know what you mean when you say... I mean, the, the, all the things that you're picking up as criticisms, I don't mean this badly, but they are nitpicky they things. They are. The big picture of it is... And again, you have to remember what cinema looked like at the time. I'd never seen anything like Batman Begins. Yep. And I remember thinking what I wanted to do was call Tim Polecat and say, you know that movie that we thought we were going to get back in blah, 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 you mm-hmm. know, 1980, whenever it was, when it arrived. It just happened to arrive you know, some time afterwards. I also thought... Christian Bale's casting was brilliant. I remember watching it and thinking there's an awful lot of American Psycho in there. He was definitely cast because of that. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. And, it's, and that works really well because it's genuine darkness as opposed to, you know, Michael Keaton being a bit cross. Yeah. Or Val Kilmer being a bit of an arse. Yeah. Or George Clooney with nipples. You know, it was, <laughs> it was actually sort of genuine darkness. So I just remember watching it and thinking it's it's astonishing that somebody has managed to get into the the studio's bloodstream mm-hmm. and do this and build this huge edifice that's got all the spires and cathedrals of action cinema that you want but for the first and it is 50 minutes an hour 
it's not a Batman movie. Still to this day, that takes my breath away. Yeah, I think that you're totally right. I genuinely think that all that is true. And I think a lot of the stuff that I want to nitpick about is because I don't really have that many nitpicks about The Dark Knight. And when I do have nitpicks nitpicks about The Dark Knight, it's more like a giggle. It's more like I can't believe that's in there. All right, so let's move on to the sacred text of The Dark Knight. And I should say (laughs) that before we start, I mean, most people are, I think, in your camp that The Dark Knight is... I don't even think I'm going to be able to do it justice about like how much I love it. I don't think I can actually be objective about it. Because to me, it just flows like a dream. That's fine, Jack. I mean, it's cinema. We don't want to be objective anyway. All cinema is subjective. Anyone who tells you that criticism is objective is an idiot. (laughs) All criticism is subjective. So, from your particular point of view... It's maybe the closest thing to a superhero masterpiece you could probably get, I think. Batman Begins sort of gathers this still fantastical Gotham City. And Nolan's done away with that. And given as Chicago and called it Gotham, mm. and it's done away with the CGI train, it's done away with the classic design of the Wayne Tower, and it's just not questioned any of that. It's just gone. This is the world we're in now, and we haven't even mentioned Heath Ledger's performance. Yeah, yet, yeah, no, no, no. And in fact, <laughs> let's do that first. Heath Ledger's performance is brilliant. Okay, yes, absolutely. Done it, yeah. There is no question. Yeah, <laughs> fabulous. Yeah, best yeah. thing you've ever seen. Yeah. Really brilliant, yeah. All the really good moments he put in himself, yeah. yeah. Taken as red. We don't even have to have that discussion. Sure, fine. Where do we begin? A year ago, these uh, cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. (laughs) For me, the whole film hangs on what everyone has called the, the, you know, the heat scene, which is the, the interrogation scene mm-hmm. where Batman and the Joker meet and talk to each other yeah. for, for five, ten minutes. The um, heat scene. The heat scene. <laughs> uh, Just in case anyone doesn't know, that's because it was the first time Pacino and De Niro have been on screen yeah, together. And, and it was the criminal meeting the copper. Yeah, and yeah, that's exactly, essentially yeah. one of the... You know, the, the yeah. Uh, I did a brief analysis of it in the uh, Secrets of Cinema in Stanley Jack, which yes. I think is currently available on uh, on iPlayer. Interesting. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So that that scene where Batman and the Joker are facing each other, I think, is maybe the most celebrated scene in the whole film. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why it's so good from a filmmaking point of view is because it's presenting all of its big ideas, but at the same time, unlike actually in Heat, where he the camera feels a bit objective and is just sort of watching them talk to each other, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. In, in The Dark Knight, the camera is active and it's switching. It's a very simple technique, but it's switching between 180 degree line during the conversation about Batman and the Joker not being so different. Yeah. And on certain very key moments when the Joker is saying things like, we're not so different or like, you know, you're like me or they think you're like me. Yeah. It cuts on those particular lines to Batman being on the same side of the 180 degree line as, as a Joker and it keeps disorientating you like that whilst it's progressing this conversation between these two legends essentially yeah. and i think that that scene is the perfect encapsulation for what the the movie is about which is that these two are complete opposing forces yeah. and they are the perfect protagonist and antagonist for each other and i don't think you can make a better movie about batman without him and yeah. that's why i think that the dark knight is ultimately uh, a better film is because you're only as good as your antagonist, okay. and you can't get better than that. Okay, I agree with that, and I agree with, with you about that scene. I think that's it. I think that's the heart of the movie, okay? But what about the boats? 
What about the boats? Okay. <laughs> so here's my issue with, with Dark Knight. Firstly, I think I went into Dark Knight having been so knocked out by Batman Begins mm-hmm. and just thinking, this is great, you know, cinema of, of ideas. Dark Knight was, for me, the moment when I went, and I hate to say this because it sounds so crass, I think you have too many ideas and I think you need to lose one of them. And the point at which I felt that, the point at which I felt, I mean, you said of Batman Begins that you felt there was things in the dialogue in which it was, look, we know this, aren't we clever? We're showing you this thing. Mm -hmm. For me, the issue with Dark Knight is an issue of set pieces. Firstly, there there are visual set pieces. There are moments in Dark Knight which are visual set pieces, which are still breathtaking and yeah. still because of the way they're shot and because the format they're shot in because Wally Fister is the great you know, hero of It's uh, such a shame this. that he's not shooting uh, Yeah, I know, but, but we can have the transcendence discussion at some point because <laughs> you know, I'm, still, I'm still standing up for transcendence. <laughs> I, have this, I have this idea, you know, it's like it's so fetch. I have this idea that at some point the transcendence wave is going to happen and everyone's going to go, actually, that's a much better movie, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> No, so there are visual set pieces, which is fine. There are moments in which you know, the screen suddenly goes, okay, here is a visual set piece. But the problem with it for me is that in terms of its ideas, its ideas exist in contained set pieces. And the, the most obvious example of that is the two boats. Because the whole film is about duality and it's about the t- you know, two sides of the same character and it's literally about characters being divided down the middle and all that. Yeah, fine, I, you know, I understand that. We did all that in Batman Begins and we did it rather brilliantly and I absolutely agree with you about the heat scene. The two boats is like the moment when the film stops and here we go, here is a big idea. Here's some and themes. These, here's some themes, you know, in the back, you're catching them. Yeah, you get them. And it was, the, it was the, the moment that I lost faith in it now. I'll be honest, I saw it twice when it first came out and it bothered me both times. Mm -hmm. It really bothered me. Third time, which is just recently, it bothered me less. I thought, okay, I've somehow stuck my anchor in this problem and and I have to... But it still bothered me. I just thought... It's like the film has jumped the shark. It's mm-hmm. like the wave has broken. And it's gone from being the thing which is an art house movie wearing blockbuster clothing into a blockbuster that suddenly stopped and went, and now, a message from our intellectual sponsors. <laughs> this city deserves a better class of criminal. I'm going to give it to him. No! <laughs> You'll see. I'll show you. Either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. There's two things in the movie that split people's opinions. It's either the boat scene, which some people either love or hate, and it's the... But do you love it? I think it could be shorter. <laughs> that's what I think. Okay, that's a diplomatic thing to say. Yeah, but, uh, the other thing is Batman saying, I'm not wearing hockey pads. That, that's, that seems to be where some people leave okay. the film and go, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not into this. And okay. that's like 10 minutes into the film. Yeah. So, <laughs> But uh, yeah, the boat scene, every time I watch it now, I know what you mean about it coming to a, a, a slower pace. But I think what I like about it is that the, the plot is following the, uh, the erratic nature of the Joker. And obviously that you know that. But... The whole film is, I want Batman to reveal himself, and that's what I want. And you're following that narrative. And then all of a sudden, in a sort of uncomfortable way, he just goes, I don't want that anymore. And you go, oh, well, what's the whole film been about then? And because he just changes his mind and shifts into another gear and goes, no, I'm having fun with this. I don't want to do, I don't want to reveal Batman anymore. The film decides to go in a different way. And I think that because of that, 
some people reject this sort of fourth act that it, that, okay. it, that it brings with it. And I think that my problems with that scene, again, are like nitpick things. I'm like, why are they all putting down their votes on paper? Why are they not doing it by raising their hands? <laughs> like, like Straight to the heart of the periphery, Jack. Well, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just watching it and being like, I don't understand this. Like, that's not how people would choose to do it. Um, but like, I think that the whole, the whole big idea stuff still really works for me. And they came up with a way of like adapting the killing joke and showing that like people are, are ultimately good and the joker is alone and like there's no other way of doing it other than like his big plan to make people to prove that people, people he, that he doesn't need to do anything he just lets the people do it themselves yeah. needs to fail it reminds me of the the argument that that friedkin had with blatty about the scene in the exorcist with the priest sitting on the steps that they cut out um, and it wasn't blatty was heartbroken about this and friedkin cut it out at the last minute and then it finally went back in for that extended edition. And there is a moment in The Exorcist when they're sitting on the steps and Karis says, what is going on? Like, what? why this girl? It makes no sense. And Von Sydow's character, Merritt, does this speech about it's not her, it's us. It, it's all about us. The attack is, is, is us and it's to make us feel bestial and vile. And Friedkin took that scene out because he said... Everyone knows that. And Blatty said, no, they don't. That's the, and it was, it's only short, actually. In, in, it, when you read it, it feels like it should be longer, but it's a short scene. And Friedkin specifically took it out because as far as he was concerned, it was the moment when the author walked on stage and yeah. went, now, if you haven't got this, <laughs> and in the case of the, of the ships, it's not a short scene. No, Even not. you, who loves the film, yeah. thinks that the ships goes on too long. Mm-hmm. You see, I think the joy of, of Dark Knight is that it's got grand ideas. But I think the greater joy of Batman Begins is it doesn't feel like it's, you know, saying, look at these grand ideas. It looks like a like a blockbuster movie, but actually it's really complicated and smart. And that's, this is not to say for one minute, I don't think The Dark Knight is a great film. I just don't think it's as great as Batman Begins. <laughs> Which brings us to Dark Knight Rises. I can't believe you think that's better than The Dark Knight because I genuinely think that The Dark Knight Rises is actively quite rubbish and quite bad. And the only things that are pretty good in it are Bane. I think that whenever Bane's on screen, that's really compelling. (laughs) Can't hear you, mate. (laughs) You're telling me he's talking to a whole load of people on top of a tank and they can all hear him and no one's going, take the mask off. <laughs> no, <I don't. laughs> there is a moment when he addresses it, and it cuts to somebody going, "Yes, goes, just do, just do something." I'm Although sure we can we, get it right. We should point out that there was a lot of debate about which version you saw it in. That the IMAX, yeah. the, the the dialogue was meant to be clear in the IMAX. I saw it in the 35 mil version in the empire and mm-hmm. i didn't have a problem with the dialogue but i know enough people yeah so they, said, they did a preview before mission impossible goes protocol right uh, of the prologue to do like the heist thing on the, on the plane just to get people excited yeah. and bane's voice was different in in that Ooh. yeah so 
uh, it was different takes. Some of them are, th are the same still, but uh, a vast majority of those takes of, of, of his voice are different. Okay. And his voice has been mixed on top of everything. Right. So clearly people went, oh, can't understand Bane. And then the studio went, oh no, panic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then they mixed his voice really high. So yeah. now I watch it and it's just, it almost feels a bit weird, especially <laughs> when you're watching it on telly. Uh, it was very loud. When Gotham is ashes, you have my permission to die. So r actively rubbish. Because, I think it's actively rubbish. Yeah. Because I think there are good things about it. I think the prologue's amazing. Bane's great. Uh, but I think that it almost does what you just said about about the Dark Knight. It sort of slows the trilogy down. It starts eight years later, which I was like, oh crap! I didn't expect it to do that. And yeah. then it goes, and he's not Batman. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't been Batman for eight years. And he's and got he's a not going leg. to be Batman yeah. for quite a long time. Yeah. yeah. This is the, sort of the comparison to the Dark Knight. What I like about the Dark Knight, as it exists in a vacuum, you can sort of just watch that movie as, as just one thing. It yeah. starts out, he's Batman, and it finishes, and the, the arc is complete with a cliffhanger, but it's, yeah. the arc is complete, and he's become the Dark Knight. And in The Dark Knight Rises, it obviously is them make, you know, shifting around their ideas because all of a sudden they don't have the Joker anymore. Like, they can't yeah. do anything with him. But it just... I like the fact that you said he has a hurty leg. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I know. But like, just... that's the, maybe like the worst bit in, in it, is he gets Batman a leg brace on. his hurty leg. Yeah, he's got a hurty leg. He puts on a leg brace. <laughs> and to prove that his leg doesn't hurt anymore, he kicks a wall out. Like, he just kicks the wall out. And, and I'm like, oh, okay. So not only is his leg better now, it's like super, super powerful. Yeah. <laughs> it's really better. <laughs> Yeah, so like, I mean, that that is... Sort like, of thinking about, will I be able to play the violin afterwards? Yeah, great, because I couldn't before. You know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I, I like some of it, but it, it's that build-up of him, like, not being Batman anymore, then seeing him become Batman again. It's all the links to Batman Begins, which... I don't really like because it sort of feels like it's wrapped up in itself. And I'm going like, we're really ignoring The Dark Knight. This could almost be a sequel to Batman Begins if it wasn't for Harvey Dent's narrative yeah. in there. Okay, structurally, it's a, it's a kind of mirror image of Batman mm, Begins. Totally. And I think this hadn't really occurred to me the first time I saw it. It's only when you... It is funny that when you watch things together, you see things about them that you didn't see the first time around. Watching Dark Knight Rises... Well, two things. Firstly... When it finished, I heaved a huge sigh of relief. I just thought, they've done it. They've literally done it. He's done three movies and he hasn't dropped the ball. Yep. You know, I mean, there are things that I like and things that I like less, but within the context of all of this, I mean, I'm surprised if you'd say that it's actively rubbish because I don't think it's any part of the, the thing that is actively rubbish. But I was struck by how much the structure of it is the structure of Batman Begins. And there's a really long period when he's not... Mm -hmm. And I, not only is he not, he is, and then he's not again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the other thing is, as a sort of massive spoiler, uh, I love the fact that what happens in the last stages of the film, it basically looks back to Inception. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about memory, and there's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. about misremembering, and there's a lot of stuff about, you know, about projecting. But I thought when we got to the end of, you know, when the, you know, the helicopter goes out and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the thing happens, so it's okay, he's dead. And then there's the, you know, the bit afterwards when Michael Caine, it's significant that it is Michael Caine. Yeah. You know, and then we suddenly see the, the, the cafe streets. And what I loved about that was some people went, oh, for heaven's sake. 
and my feeling was that, that scene you can take it or leave it right it's i mean did you think it was real did you think he'd he'd actually seen that so this was a debate that a lot of people had actually and i thought it was a bit strange that people were having the, the debate about whether or not it was real even though it does make sense because it's nolan and it just come out straight after inception mm-hmm. and it's, it's weird to nitpick it again but i almost prefer i would prefer the idea that like we didn't cut to Bruce Wayne. It's just a bit of a weird cut. He, he literally cheers at him. Like, is hello. Like, it's it's. Yeah, but doesn't but isn't that the thing that tells you that it's not real? Oh, I don't isn't, know. Isn't that the spinning top? Isn't that the moment when you go, okay, it's not real? Yeah. Okay. It's it's an interesting thought, and it's definitely like an interesting interpretation of of of, of those events. But I feel like it's so like, it's not like he's like just caught his face in a crowd. He's there. Yeah, but that's the point, right? If he just caught his face in the crowd, then it would have been. Oh, I no, I saw him. I thought I, I, I saw it was him, right? But the fact that he doesn't, the fact that it is clearly him in this impossible situation, which yeah. makes no sense whatsoever, and that, he's there with Catwoman. Yes, and then it's then it's gone. Which is so. It's from my point of view, it's like you've got to the end of this whole thing and you've killed him. And then you've done this thing that looks like a kind of, oh, we haven't killed him. But you have, because what's happening is it's so clearly not actually happening. And I thought, again, I can't believe that, you know, how many millions of dollars are we into the franchise at Mm -hmm. that point that you get away with that audacious thing? Also, I remember being in the cinema when the, you know, when I I first saw um, Dark Knight Rises. And I remember the emotional effect of the helicopter going off and and, and the sacrifice thing. You think this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You and your friends better batten down the hatches. Because when it hits, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. I also think Michael Caine is brilliant in that film. He's I think absolutely so brilliant in that film. The bit where he leaves him in, in the hallway when he says, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And the bit when he's talking to the, the, the Wayne's gravestones and says, I failed you. Like, he's so brilliant in yeah. that. And yeah. I, I think he's, it's almost like his brilliance. I mean, people, you know, we've talked about Heath Ledger and all that, and that's fine. But pe- people kind of overlook the how good is Michael Caine there. Because you kind of think, what well, is Michael Caine? Of course he's going to be good. And I mean, people were talking about Gary Oldman's performance and, you know, the nicely understated. And also, but, it's but actually, so understated. Yeah, really, really understated. Like, th- Gary Oldman in The Dark Knight Rises has to say some of the clunkiest, wordiest, weird dialogue <laughs> that's ever been written. I can't even remember the, the lines of it, but when, he, when he's talking to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, when he's seeing Bane on the television, and he's saying, like... These, these big ideas that you're saying, but you're saying it in such a small way. And they're like, I've plunged their hands into the filth so that you can keep yours clean. Like all that stuff. And, and the stuff previously to it is even bigger, but he's saying it so quietly that like, it's like when um, Ian McKellen delivers Lord of the Rings dialogue. It, it just feels natural, yeah. but like everybody else can't do it. Like yeah. it's, it's like when Katie Holmes says... Bruce, it's not who you are underneath, it's what you do that defines you. And it's like, oh, that's a line that you saw in the script and then read it, isn't it? Rather than like when Aaron Eckhart says, um, it's you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. That He completely under, understates that line. Yeah. But then there are some actors who just can't 
say those big lines and it's because they're big movie lines yeah. and and they're hard to say so it's almost like I'm not blaming okay. the actors but, but don't you think therefore having said that you think there are things in it that are actively rubbish don't you think that the way in which Dark Knight Rises finally m- moves towards that finale is really audacious yeah I think I think it's because I have a preference to like I almost wish that it was left more to the imagination because everything is so there on screen. I mean, like it's 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 almost spelling things out for you, and and I feel like we're reading into the fact that because it's so ridiculous and it makes no sense, we're reading into the fact that like, but it's Nolan. It maybe it's maybe it wasn't real, especially because it was after Inception. No, but you know, you're sort of saying it like I'm kind of I'm trying to excuse it out. No, Christopher Nolan knows how to do a scene which is a oh, did it? I didn't know. That scene is not that. Mm-hmm. That scene is is so different in tone to a glimpse in the crowd. Everything about that scene says, this isn't happening. Right, that's very interesting. Like, I, I, I just didn't feel that because okay. they've got, you've got all that, all that stuff previous to it as well. I'm just like, sir, the autopilot, someone fixed it. What's the name on it? Bruce Wayne. Like, it's, it's yeah. all that stuff previously before you see him there. So it's not like you just see that in the crowd. Actually, I will give you that. That is a fair criticism. Yeah, I, yeah. The, it, your, the autopilot thing is, yeah. That you although, see that. Although that does feel like it was retrofitted. That does so feel like so much stuff like in, the, in that last <laughs> sequence feels like it was retrofitted. Like, watch just the bit where you find out that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's name is Robin, and you never see anyone say the name Robin. That's definitely like not the original cut of that scene. Yeah. And I imagine it was a close-up of his driving license, and you caught it was like a brief thing. Like if you saw the name Robin, you were like, "Oh, oh, cool." So like that's what he represents. But then you've got a dub of someone being like, "You should use your real name." I like that, Robin. Like, and it's like, <laughs> oh god, like this is not Nolan. And and no. another thing about it as well is that I think that Christopher Nolan is a brilliant filmmaker for making it clear what the rules of his worlds are. That like in Inception, for example when he's sitting opposite Ellen Page, Leonardo DiCaprio is sitting yeah. opposite Ellen Page and, ex- and just basically says to her and to the audience, how did we get here? You as the audience go, oh crap, yeah. I wasn't like paying attention and all of a sudden we're in a different place and like he's explaining how not only dreams work but how films work because that's, you know, it's, that's the, the metaphor. Mm. Um, and then he follows it up with The Dark Knight Rises where it's the rules of his world that he's breaking where he's been taken out of Gotham dropped in a cave and all of Gotham has been all the bridges have been exploded and like there's no way of getting in or out and then all of a sudden Batman's back in in Gotham City the next scene I'm like how did you get there because Nolan's already explained to me in a different film obviously but like how the rules of cinema work so I'm now watching it with a keen eye being like no that doesn't make sense and just tiny little things about it that are just like outside of the reality of what I thought this Batman okay. trilogy was. But, 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 but one of the things I like about that is, you know, when they have you know, confrontations which are down at street level, because you know if it was Tim Burton, everything would have been, I can't have this conversation until I'm standing on top of that bridge. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I just happen to be walking across this rooftop that it's impossible to get to. Yeah. And now, I'm, it's like, but like every <laughs> single scene in the Tim Burton film, it's like, is he flying? <laughs> How did he get there? There's a scene in The Dark Knight Rises, though, where know, he's about to go know, into the I sewer. Know, I know, I know. He's about to go into the sewer, and just before he goes into the sewer, there's a shot of him standing on a building. So it's like, I'll climb up I here. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. This is a good view. Yeah. Better go into the sewer now. <laughs> like, that, that sort of stuff is just... I think that's what I mean by actively rubbish, is that it feels kind of funny okay. compared to like, yeah. the seriousness of The Dark Knight. All right. I think you're right, okay? I think that you... I think you make your point well. Yes. So yes. I think that I will concede that 
Dark Knight is a better film than Dark Knight Rises, which I know the whole of the world is going, yeah, so, yeah. and tell me something I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not really so, a very good victory for me. No, it, no <laughs> but it, it, it is. Um, because, I mean, I think the reason I like Dark Knight Rises is because of how much it reminds me mm-hmm. of Batman Begins. I mean, but I think, it, I think you're right there. I off. just thought of another bit as well where Liam Got Neeson fades away in the Dark Knight <laughs> <laughs> Like, he's there, and then he just fades away. Yeah, okay, right, like, now, right, okay. I've conceded, all right? So it's like, stop, don't kick it when it's down (laughs) however i also think that you're probably right that the dark knight is an inverted commas better film than technically better film no i don't even mean technically i think it's probably a better film but i still love batman begins more and i i think that that's absolutely fine and i think there's going to be people who are shouting at this podcast basically saying both of those things like that they that they don't care that most people love one or the other they they're there for there and i think that what we can both say is that we saw those films at times where we weren't expecting Batman to be yeah. that. Yeah, I come back to this all the time. I remember coming out of Batman Begins and turning to Nigel and saying, I cannot believe how good that was. Yeah, I, 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 you, you mean, you're not going to like this, but I was too young to like Batman Begins when it came out. So we got it on like a, like a rented DVD or something to yeah. watch because I was like, oh, Batman, I've not seen this one. And I'm like... 13, 14. And then I put it on. Why isn't he Batman? Literally. Like, I was watching it being like, where's Batman? Because I'm used to it starting with in the cave with Batman and Robin, having some quippy line about this is why Superman works alone. And I'm like, where's Batman? This isn't what I wanted. And and and, and the the editing is so, like, sharp in Batman Begins. It keeps cutting from one thing to another without... And it makes you play catch-up. That I was watching it being like, I don't get the story in this. And then I watched it the year that The Dark Knight was coming out, so I was older now, and completely loved it and the ending as well floored me because it's the joker card reveal especially knowing that that was coming out in a few months i was completely in love with it and then i think the dark knight just topped it for me like we both saw those movies at formative times for when we thought batman couldn't be that good yeah yeah and now we're back in the trenches again with batman jack that was a that was a pleasure it was an absolute pleasure thank you very much guy dresses up like a bat clearly has issues Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to the Kermode on Film podcast. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe. Now, next up, an interview with Maggie Gyllenhaal in which she talks about her new film, The Kindergarten Teacher, about the role of women in the film industry. And as you will hear, I get her to prove that she really can play the theremin. Now, just a little word of introduction. 
Before Maggie Gyllenhaal came into the room where we did the interview, it was in a hotel, I had set the theremin up on the table and I'd covered it over with a cloth so it wasn't you know, immediately apparent that it was there. Literally, just before Maggie Gyllenhaal came into the room, there was a power cut and all the lights went off. So the interview that you're about to hear was conducted in almost total darkness. Brilliantly, the theremin and the amplifier ran by batteries, otherwise that would never have happened. But just bear in mind, as you listen to this interview, that Maggie Gyllenhaal, ever the professional, went, not a problem, can't see a thing, let's do it anyway. I teach kindergarten. That's such a delicate thing, right? You give the kids something and then they, yeah, they have it forever. The sun hits her yellow house. It's almost like a sign from God. Was that a poem? <laughs> that was a poem. So, Maggie, I saw Kindergarten Teacher last night and I, I really, really liked it. Tell me about how the project came about and can you describe it for a listener without giving too much away about the plot? Yeah, um, it is... I guess the narrative, the story, is about a woman who uh, is a kindergarten teacher and also a poet who gets obsessed with a child in her class, a five-year-old, when she starts to think that he's a poetic genius. But what it's really about is um, the consequences of what happens when you starve a vibrant woman's mind. Well, it's a cautionary tale. The consequences uh-huh. of what could happen, you know. So the story is, as I see it, it's more about her unraveling than it's about, you know, there being a child prodigy. It's more about her state of mind and what happens to her. I think so. And I think it's even a question whether or not he is a prodigy. You know, I think five-year-olds say incredible things all the time. And... I think it's, you know, I think it's too much of a coincidence that she's a poet whose work is not being heard and all of a sudden there's this poet in her class. I think she needs it and she sees what she needs to see. Two things that occurred to me while I was watching it. One of them was there's a moment in which somebody says, you know, computers are writing poetry now. Yeah. And there was a moment when I thought, is it going to transpire that actually the stuff that we're hearing is computer-generated poetry? And the other thing was that the suggestion that maybe... Maybe it's her all along, that maybe she's actually the thing that's driving it. Am I just reading too much into it? Well, I think it's, I think it's sort of all of these things all combined. I do think that I wondered... This is a place where Sarah Colangelo, who's the writer-director, mm-hmm. who I really think is brilliant and yeah. did a wonderful job, it's a place where I think she and I fell on... Um, slightly different sides of the line and actually I was just I just had lunch today as I'm in London with um Hugo Blick who wrote and directed The Honorable Woman and I remember him saying to me at one point we really disagreed about this sort of major thing in that show and I remember him saying it's fine that we disagree and we can leave it as a disagreement because that will create a kind of shimmering energy around this part of the piece. And so Sarah and I, who I think collaborated really well, didn't agree on everything, but, you know, really were able to communicate well. I think she felt that he was a genius and that he has a kind of, um, you know, almost goes into a trance-like state and says these poems. Whereas I felt that it's, 
it's almost impossible to put a finger on who is the author mm -hmm. of the poems. Where do the line breaks come? As she writes down the words she thinks she hears, does she put her own work and her own imagination and her own artistry into it? You know, And I think also because she's a character who's very confused, you know, deeply confused ultimately, mm -hmm. um, I think she doesn't even know from scene to scene who she thinks the author is. I think like, when I was playing the scenes in the classroom where she takes his poetry, yeah. I believed they were hers. As does everybody else in the classroom because it sounds like they ought to be hers. Right, and in some way I do truly believe they are hers. <laughs> you know, so it's a place where, where I think Sarah and I kind of agreed to disagree, but it creates an interesting kind of gray area inside the movie, which I think is really valuable. Hello. Jimmy, hi, it's Lisa. Why are you calling me? It's almost like a sign from God. Why are you upset? I loved it. Talent is so fragile and so rare, and our culture does everything to crush it. It's great watching the film because uh, it looks like a passion project. It looks like something that people are doing because they really believe in it. And I love the ambiguity. I love the ambivalence. I love the fact that right up until the very end, you're not entirely sure how to feel about any of the characters. Mm. Um, you do have a knack for picking that kind of project and obviously being a driving force in that kind of project. But mm. we are told all the time that the marketplace is more and more difficult for that sort of project. Is that true? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I, mean, <Okay. laughs> I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I would say is, I okay, I read the script, and having seen the movie, I'm sure you can imagine the last line mm -hmm. written down on the page, and you just kind of go, yes, this is really worthwhile. And, and, yeah, and also, it like really drew me in some kind of visceral way. I signed up to do it, and that part was pretty easy. Then we, as a group of women, went about trying to get the money to make it. And... Um, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about that, actually, to be honest, because I produced it also. I mean, one thing I think is, okay, we're a group of women telling a story about a woman, and we didn't anticipate we were going to get given a lot of money to make this movie, but we did not have enough. Okay. And we were like, okay, cool, we didn't expect to have enough. I can change my clothes in the bathroom on the Staten Island Ferry. We're going to make it work because that's how we do. And, and it looks great. And it looks beautiful. And then on another level, I think, it isn't right. We should have had a little more money. So I feel both very proud of us that we made it work against all odds mm -hmm. in some ways. And it does make it even more special that it's getting attention and that it worked in the end. Yeah. Um, but I also think like there's an example of a place where there's inequality, right? Where I do think if this were a story about a man, we would have had more money. Okay, so you think it does come down to a, to a gender thing in terms of the, of the narrative itself? Yeah, um, but look, the money always lags. You know, the people making the work, are always ahead of the people paying for it. It just mm -hmm. takes a minute. I'm, I'm confident that they'll catch up. My partner is one of the driving forces in this thing called Calling the Shots, which is a project that was looking at the role of women in the UK film industry since the turn of the century. 
and the stats are terrifying. I mean, the numbers of women working in key roles, I mean, if you get down to things like cinematographers, I mean, terrifyingly low percentages. I think probably particularly with cinematographers, right? Although for no reason, because the whole argument about, oh, well, the big heavy cameras have to be carried around and no longer holds any water at all. But everyone that they've spoken to did feel that things were starting to get better. Do you feel positive? I do. I do. I do feel positive. I feel positive. I feel excited. I feel fundamentally like there's some, you know, in my head I have this image of like a stone door from like biblical times or something that just got like kicked open somehow and some light is shining through. And I think I'm so grateful for that. And I guess I feel like our responsibility, men and women now, is just to keep it open. Yeah. And I don't think it will stay open if we do sort of blunt thinking. I think we have to do the most careful, most subtle, complicated thinking. And I think, I mean, I have like a real visceral interest in doing that because mm-hmm. I'm a woman, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, but yes, I do. I do feel... I feel excited. And and I, I also feel, I mean, look, I think there's a real value to consciously hiring women on a crew. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know that our uh, Cillian Rattre, who was one of our producers, consciously did that in terms of hiring. Yeah. I also think, and maybe I'm slightly more compelled by the idea that very complicated to to explain but there was something fundamentally feminine expressed in this script Mm -hmm. and so it compelled women naturally to want to work on it and I'm really interested in that I read the script and I was like yeah this is saying something I've never heard said quite and then the other thing that I love that I've been hearing is um, a few men have said to me I mean I'm not a woman but my heart broke for her I related to her because I think women have been, you know, relating to stories that are fundamentally masculine or have like the most interesting character as a man forever because otherwise, what would we relate to, you know? And it's nice to have, for both genders, to have it flipped. I'm aware that time is short. There's a couple of things I want to ask you. Um, In Frank, did you learn the theremin? I tried. Okay. I play it live. I mean, that's me playing. Okay. Maggie. Yes. Oh, no. You have a theremin. I've got a theremin here. <laughs> that's perfect. It's a very, very Radio small podcast. theremin. Now, I am the okay. world's worst theremin player. Okay? I have a large Moog theremin, but this is the small okay. one. This is a long time ago. Let's yeah, see I if I can remember. Now, I guarantee you that whatever you do will sound better than, than either me or what this theremin would allow. Okay? So, here we go. Okay, that stops it. Yeah, and that, oh, there's no swell on it. It's literally it's a cigar box one, so it so it doesn't have a left hand. It's literally a right hand. Okay, I'm trying to remember pitch. Okay. That was magnificent. <laughs> I am so impressed. I am. So, thank you. That was that's really well done. Thank you. And that was all sense memory. In all the things you've done, was that one of the greatest? Because the theremin, it's an impossible. I mean, Lev Theremin thought you invent an instrument with no notes. Anyone can play it. Turns out the opposite's true. Oh no, because there's no point of reference. It's like even on a violin where there's no frets, you mm. can like tell. Yeah, there's you. Yeah. Uh, well, that's what's so cool about my job is like I got to have 10 theremin lessons <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't just like, you know, I don't know, having like 
me time. <laughs> you know, it was for yeah. something. Honestly, I of all the things in your career that have impressed me, and many have, the fact that you just managed to do that, it, it absolutely <laughs> takes the That, for me, is a, a proper a proper artist. Maggie, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, look forward to the film opening. I think it opens in the UK in January. I think so. Your hopes for it? I hope everyone will see it and be moved by it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, what do you ever hope? I think it will work very well. Could have done with more theremin. <laughs> Next time. Now, in episode one of Kermit on Film, we played a little snippet of Lynn Ramsey talking at one of the MK3D shows I do live at the BFI South Bank every month. She came on stage with Samantha Morton to talk about her new film, You Were Never Really Here, and also to talk about the film they made together, Morvan Caller. We had a lot of interest in that snippet that we played, so here is the full interview with Lynn Ramsey and Samantha Morton on stage at MK3D at the BFI South Bank. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Oh, Lee, welcome to the awesome. show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. You know, I've uh, been trying for ages to get you to come on the show, but you don't make films very often, and uh, it was so worth waiting for. I mean, we need to talk about Kevin, which is the best film that came out the year that it came out. This, I think, is pretty much on course to be the same thing. One of the things that happens when you make films, like when once every sort of four years, once every five years, there was an interview with you in The Observer, and you said, well, I get this reputation for being difficult. You're not difficult, you're just a perfectionist and you only do the things you want to do. Has it been hard to keep that kind of purity? Because you've made four out of four flat-out masterpieces. God. (laughs) (laughs) Set up for a fall again. (laughs) Um, It's in the job description a little bit, director, you know. (laughs) It's like you you have to make tough decisions, uh, and sometimes you're seen as a... That's seen as something as like um, the creative genius, and sometimes it's seen as hysteria, you know? So, you know, that's the bullshit of the world. Can I ask you a horror film question? Because I saw a thing in, in the film which I thought was, and I'm probably wrong, yeah. critics do this all the time. They say, oh, such and such, you know, refers to. The scene with Joaquin Phoenix and his mother, there's a number of those scenes, and the first time he comes back, she's been watching Psycho, and there's a whole kind of Norman Bates yeah. thing going on in the background. But I thought that there was an echo there of the scenes between Damien Carris and his mother in The Exorcist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I love about making films, interpretations, like, that you're like, what? You know? I think I saw someone at KBC Ratcatcher went, it's all about Jesus, and I'm like, really? <laughs> find that really fascinating. Um, I mean, a lot of people think that, that that scene in particular because, you know, it's this kooky relationship between Joe, the main character, and his mother, you know, was it was this big reference that I put on the, in the script to Psycho, but but actually, my mum watches the tech TV, like TCM, and she's really into thrillers, and she turns them up really loud even though she's not deaf, you know? <laughs> and she's got two TVs and they're out of sync, yeah? I don't know why, yeah. Um, so one's on in the kitchen, the other one's on in the living room, and you're like, mum, this is driving me crazy. So as you said to Judith Roberts, the actress, who was really cool, and she was so much fun to work with. She's at that age, but I think she just was having a hoot. It was like, who cares, you know? This is great, I love this. Um, and just, I don't know, like, as you said, what would you be watching and, you know, like, think about the films you like. And she said that, it was the first take, and he said, you know, 
he went, ee, 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 you know? Like, you know, they just improvised it a bit. And then everyone's asking me, like, oh, yeah, that, that reference to Alfred Hitchcock. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't know that. But that ee, ee sound cost 15 grand, you know? <laughs> and then we used it twice, and it cost 30 grand. So people were freaking out at me. And I'm like, but that's a take, you know? You know, because it's like this, in Cannes, in the version in Cannes, we had um, happened to be that Joaquin was just listening to real late night radio and living on, on a prayer came on John Bon Jovi and he started sort of wigging out a bit and I'm like this is great you know but we can use that because it costs like 40 grand or something you know so I had to get the the, 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 the guy from the radio the actual DJ I got the same DJ just introducing that song because it always comes on that song living in a prayer you know it's just like, but it just sort of works so it was like you know there was a lot of you're doing a temp mix and you put something in there and it kind of sticks and it actually is better than what you think you're going to put on later. Yeah. So it was that kind of thing with that, yeah. And Johnny Greenwood did the score for it. And it is a, it's a brilliant score. What was he like to work with? Well, this was a... We'd worked on Kevin, but that was a sort of, like... You know, there was a little bit more money, actually, for that score. Like, um, But that wasn't even a score. We, were sort of, we talked about much more, like, a kind of... It was almost sound design. It was a kind of underscore, I guess you call it. So, but he was amazing. He's really modest and like he's just a super talented guy. And you know, I get this um, Chinese musician and called Lu Fang to do this. Like, uh, there's a cool song called Ambush, and these songs are sort of passed down in Chinese tradition and stuff. And um, and she came in and she. He'd set up the whole thing in the Radiohead studio and she's like that, nope, nope, it's not that, it's not that, and bossing him about, you know. And, and he was really cool about it, you know, but she's like, I don't know who you are, she probably didn't know Radiohead, and, you know, he was great. And, and this, it was like he was on tour with Radiohead, the whole thing happened really fast, it was like, it was a real crazy way this film evolved. It was like, I, you know, spent time with the DP and the sound designer and, and told Johnny about it, but then suddenly it was in production and suddenly we were we're cutting so he was like oh I'm on tour I don't know if I can do it and I'm like well here's the first five minutes well here's the first 15 minutes like and he was kind of getting in you know it was a chronological kind of reading of the character I guess and and I think the score became a bit like the character where you thought you knew it was going to where you were like yeah. it but then it kind of goes somewhere completely different and kind of implodes and and we both big Penzarecki fans and you know so which I don't know he's just like this super modest guy that's really talented and you get he sends you this music and you're like the editor and I were like you know jumping up and we we're like oh my god we're getting music from Johnny and like and people thought we were nuts in the curtain room you know what I mean like it was just running up and down the corridors thinking wow you this is this was amazing and it's not scored to picture it's just an inspiration. So they're they're long pieces. I had to get I got his engineer to who did done Phantom Fred and like other things as well because the music evolves, you know. Yeah. So you we cut to the music then. You know, we didn't it wasn't a traditional thing where you you know you stick the music on at the end. I, I, yeah. I don't work like that. So yeah. Um of those four films that you've made, the the one I was having a conversation the other day with somebody and I, we, we we were playing this stupid game Smart and, it, and it's what's the best Lynn Ramsey movie? And the smart answer is Morvan Caller in the same way as what who's the best Beatle, the smart answer is George Harrison. And I love Morvan Caller, and I, it's not available on disc at the moment, is that right? You, it needs to have a good Blu-ray release? Yeah, it was, it was a while ago, and, you know, I just really loved making that film, and like, it's kind of a, a place in my heart because 
I co-wrote it with a friend of mine who's an animator uh, called Liana Donini who died really young and mm. but it was just that we knew we were making a kind of cowboy movie we were doing something I think pretty radical at the time it was two very irreverent girls it was like it doesn't play melodrama you know like it, it, there was a lot of things that we were it was just really funny making I worked with the amazing actress Samantha Morton so but it was one of those things where it was like it was a bit too I remember, <laughs> I, I think it was just like too radical at the time for the for the you know the distributors, and they were like, "What is this? And where are the lesbian sex scenes? You know, to make it saleable but and stuff like that." But I think a lot a lot of actors have seen that film. It's become its own neat little cult thing, you know, in its its own way. You Can know? we show a clip? Do you want to do the setup of what what the story is for people who haven't seen it? Well, ba- <laughs> basically, it's about a girl, you know. You know, wakes up one morning and finds her boyfriend dead, and he's left a suicide note. He's written a book and he's left this this note saying, you know, send it to the publishers, be brave, and a bit of money. And she puts her name in the book and takes the money and buggers off to Spain where pal and buries the body and yeah, and goes night cl- goes clubbing. Yeah. Morvin One of the best, you know, best novels I've read for a while. I mean, what I really love was hearing such a distinctive female voice. I, I love just the honesty. Very fresh. I can assure you that for a first-time writer, £100,000 is, is a really good deal. <laughs> you said, when we talked about you said you work with, uh, you know, the amazing Samantha Morton. I think the only thing that would be better than having you here on stage would be to have you and Samantha Morton here on stage. And luckily, we can. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Samantha Morton! <laughs> I'm so glad you could come because we were convinced that you couldn't because you're really busy, you're in the middle of filming. Yeah. filming. So your memories of Morvan Caller, I mean, it's such an extraordinary <laughs> piece of work. And bear in mind, you're sitting next to the director. Gosh, it's, it's really interesting. Obviously, it's a while ago now. And, um, yeah, I just feel like I peaked too early. You know, <laughs> the, most, the best experience ever. Um, the, the level of inspiration, and you used the word genius earlier on, and I think that that... It's a, it's a funny word to say, but it, you can't say it about many people, but say it about them. So oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's that. Uh, I've done um, a lot of stuff, a lot of telly, Boone. Uh, <laughs> Monday the Car Thief in Boone. Uh, cracker. I've done a lot of telly and, and then got into films um, through being really stubborn and saying, I, don't, I, I, I can't, you know, work with a boom operator anymore that's falling asleep holding the boom because he's, you know, just been on, you know, Rod Jane and Freddie the day before. <laughs> with all respect, I, I just felt like I was made for something a bit better. Not, no, no disrespect to that particular boom chap. But, um, <laughs> and he's here tonight. <laughs> um, the experience um, was extraordinary for me because um, I, through whatever reason, my own, my own personality, uh, I think, was quite insecure and afraid and so would find a character and stick to it. And Lynn was the first person ever, director, writer-director, to include me in the cinematic process. So she'd actually say to me, this is my shot, when you just come and look at this? And Lynn would be Morven and would allow me to look at a monitor and say, okay, this is the front. And it was, the mo- it was like having a masterclass. 
of how it should really oh, the be The most done. bonkers thing, actually, is that I didn't really realise I'd done that. And someone someone <laughs> filmed me at the monitor. And it was a club scene at the end. And you know, just was an, it was just like when you have that moment when you're making a film where you're like, wow, this is is good, if not better, and it doesn't happen very often when you're making a film, like, that it's kind of exactly what you thought you would wish for, because um, many things always go wrong, or it just is different in the day or whatever, but um, I think that was something to do with that performance as well. It was so mesmeric, because we didn't know when to call cut, and the producer was standing, every time I turned, the producer was there, it was like, well, you know, there's a lot of film stock going through this camera, you know, like, and, you know, and it, it was really great to shoot a film, but, like, you know, Sam gets so into character that it was, like, and I think Joaquim had that thing as well. It was just, like, bloody hell, I, I, I don't really want what he called cut, you know, and... Um, and, Sam, I know you went to see You Were Never Really Here and you had a very strong reaction to it. Yeah, I had a panic attack. It was, almost, <laughs> it was like, just, I was all over the shop in, a, in an amazing way because it was both... You know, I, I said to Lynn, um, it's like seeing a Francis Bacon for the first time, or so, when something literally changes your world. And I think, obviously, watching Lynn's films and being a fan of Lynn's work and, and, and you know, other filmmakers in the world, I think that's what film has the power to do, is change your life. You know, I, I think I've seen all these films, I'm 40 years old, <laughs> but yet then a film comes along that changes your life again, that makes you go... Oh my God, like just, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that like, we've watched loads of films and then you go, wow, it still happens. Will you two work together again? I mean, Morva Keller is such a brilliant piece of work and the <clears> reputation <throat> of it now is, it's one of those films that's really grown with the years. Will, is there a possibility that you'll work together again? You I, I think so. I mean, I, I, lo I think the people I've worked with have been kind of a bit outside like you know the convention in a way but being so interesting because of that like John C. Reilly or Ezra Miller as well and Tilda and Joaquim and Sam like, I've just had a real you know it's been the real sort of people I love actually you know so I, I think that I don't know like, I mean it was always a, it was such a special thing for me because just seeing this girl and this through this lens and being like oh my god she just who is she you know like, and it was just it was mesmerising um I'll never ever forget that experience, you know. Um, so yeah, I think I think we most definitely will. Yeah. And Samantha, you, I mean, you've done you know, extraordinary big budget movies. You worked with Steven Spielberg, who uh, right after Morphin Keller, <laughs> she was training for Minority Report. I remember that. Well, yeah, yeah but I mean, an extraordinary thing—a Steven Spielberg movie starring Tom Cruise. You know, great, huge, big special effects. And at the time, those special effects were really kind of you know yeah. innovative and really, you know. And then recently, you were in Fantastic Beasts. You were the very best thing in. Oh. Fantastic beast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, what's it like working on those, you know, huge, great big productions when there's massive amounts of special effects and stuff involved? I love it. I really love it. Oh, I love good. it all. I, I just feel really chuffed to be employed, actually, as a woman, as an older woman. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not like, oh, woe is me, but you know, like, oh, thank you. And I, I, I think I love it all, though. I love the fantastic, fantastic beast. David is incredible, David Jones. But the, you, you, um, you just learn all different muscles as, of what you're capable of and, and if people give you the opportunity it's like you know Lynn could do anything it's people put limitations on us as, as women and as and as actors or as directors or writer directors Lynn was the first to me the, is the word auteur um, a writer director that I'd ever worked with and I didn't really understand 
I didn't watch a lot of films growing up because I was scared to copy performances. I was like, I don't want to watch stuff because yeah. what if I have a psychological copying thing or something and I'm crap. <laughs> Lynn introduced me to um, all these filmmakers. What's the, you know, I can't say his name, but is it Tom? Tarkovsky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know. You know, Lynn was my teacher, so in that way. But, but so. you've also you directed. I mean, you made uh, that brilliant film, um, on of which was went to television first, and then was so well received that it ended up getting a theatrical release, which which never happens. But it's still, I still can't get my second feature made. Hopefully, even after that. Yeah, but it took me ten years to get the money for that. <laughs> So, you know, I was trying to get other people to make that film. I would say, this is the film I want to make. Would you uh, hand him a script round to people? In a, actually, in a little wheelie uh, suitcase. <laughs> it was like a piece of paper. Um, and then in the end, I was like, well, I'm going to have to make it. Because I didn't think I was a filmmaker in that way. I've just got something to say. And that's why the second part of the trilogy I'm trying to make. And, I, and you know, that, that's, it's when you, if you have something to say. Yeah. And the way that you can communicate that is through visuals. Uh, you know, the, the, the media, of, you know, that film media. So, yeah, hope to do that again. Well, look, I have to say, I'm, I'm really honoured to have both of you on the stage. I'm, you know, a huge fan. I'm about this far away from bursting into tears, so I'm trying not to do that, all right? So, oh, thank you know, you. It's, I'm so glad you could come, and I know how busy you are with all the stuff. What are you doing now? You've got a film? I am, I've just shot a film, a feature for Tom Beard, um, uh, who does a lot of music videos and stuff, um, and art stuff. And um, I don't know what that's going to be called, actually. <laughs> but, um, and I'm doing a show. I, I do, uh, you know, I didn't... I started off in television and then made movies and then I've gone back to television I'm lucky enough to be doing um, a show called Harlots for Hulu which is <laughs> oh cheers someone out there knows it which is written by Maura Buffini you know it's written by women produced by women directed by women it's an all female show me and Leslie Manville it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's brilliant and I'm really loving it and I've just done the second finish well a couple more days second Series of fantastic. Well, look, I have to do more films, but this is the thing you know, anyone out there wants me, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Joan, actually, Betty Davis put an advert in the newspaper in the feud thing saying actress uh, looking for work. <laughs> That's me, <laughs> Lynn. A new film on the go, or we have to wait for a while? Or, oh, uh, no, I, I you know, it was I was so buzzed out when we got to the end of this one, I, it was last day of the shoot, and normally you're like. You know, you're totally exhausted. I hadn't slept. I had to cut 20 pages out. I mean, like, it was just like a mad hallucination, the whole thing, you know. And um, But afterwards, it was like, kind of like, oh, let's just continue. Let's, like, let's keep this crew. It's a really good crew. And you're a good, you know, you're not a bad actor, Wickham. And yeah. let's, <laughs> let's keep going, you know what I mean? And I, we both felt like that. So I just feel really energised. It's a, a real pleasure to have both of you. At the end of this show, I'm going to go back and re-edit my Observer review online and take out all those things that I said were in it. No, in I the think meantime, that's brilliant. I... It's done with Lynn Ramsey and Samantha Morton. That was Lynn Ramsey and Samantha Morton live on stage at MK3D at the BFI South Bank in London. If you like the sound of that and you want to come along to one of those shows, then just get in touch with the, uh, the BFI box office. They happen every month. Thanks so much for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. Again, if you've enjoyed it, please do subscribe and join us again next week. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.